Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. We have much to do today, and there is a priority to it, so I shall not detain you long with the next verse in Romans chapter 15. I read to you verses 13 and 14. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Amen. May God add His blessing to His Word. Biblical preaching, according to the Bible, not according to Charles Spurgeon, the prince of pulpiteers, or anyone else, is, so they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, and it is a privilege to be your pastor, and to read the word of God distinctly, and give a sense, the sense to it, and bring you to understanding of it. And we'll trust the Lord God to give us the conviction that should follow the understanding to put it into practice. The emphasis and certain focus is always God's words. Not the words of any preacher or pastor. Always God's words. We don't want to embellish anything that God's written in a certain way. We just want to take what God has said and make it as plain, as practical, and as powerful and persuasive as God will allow us to do. But the emphasis and certain focus should always be His words, as when it is said, Thus saith the Lord. And I just read to you two verses from Romans 15, and I say to you, Thus saith the Lord. They're not my words at all. They're His words. Romans 15 has been a great source of joy to me in recent weeks. And I'd like to remind you that Christian liberty covers all of chapter 14, but the first half of chapter 15, or the first third of chapter 15. And I hope that you'll remember that. I hope that you'll remember in the first three verses of chapter 15, it tells us the Lord Jesus Christ did not please Himself but pleased others. And that word pleased is used in all three verses because we ought not to please ourselves, but to please others. I hope that you remember that there is in the sixth verse a crown jewel of Christian liberty. And I love these words, and I want to read them to you again. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In case you weren't sure which God is under consideration, and that is a major issue of conflict in certain other places. Because God is too vague of a term. It's a title. It's a noun. It's not a name. And our nation wants to make Allah of the Muslims and Jehovah of the Christians, though most Christians don't even know the name of their God is Jehovah. They think God is His name. God is not a name. God is named here and described by other offices He holds by being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That makes Him very different from Allah right there. But the words I want out of that sixth verse are glorify God. 
The reason Christian liberty is so important is that when we come together as a church and we sing as we have sung today, that it is pleasing to God because we do it with one mind and one mouth. And we do it with one mind and one mouth by following the things that we have learned about Christian liberty in not despising or judging each other for things that God does not care about. So we just come in here and forget all those little things that irritate most people and we ignore them to love each other and God is blessed and glorified by us praising Him without any divisions among us. So I love that sixth verse. Verse 7 is wonderful if you'll get the connection of it to 14.1. In verse 7 it says, Wherefore receive ye one another... In 14.1 it says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye. That's an opening and a closing to Christian liberty. I hope you like that. In verses 8-12, through 12, I hope that you remember that verse 8 was to the Jews because Jesus was a minister to the circumcision. And verses 9-12 through 12 are all about Gentiles as Paul brings up four quotations from the New Testament. And those five verses together are Jesus Christ is our uniting person. Jesus Christ is the uniting factor of Christianity. And because of Him, there should be no differences between Jews and Gentiles, though their cultural, national, political, traditional differences were great. I hope you remembered that. I love that combination about Jesus Christ. Remember the emphasis that I put on the word, the first word of verse 9, and... That and is so important because verse 8 is about the Jews and lifts them up with their relationship to Jesus Christ. But then verses 9 through 12 lift up the Gentiles for their relationship to Jesus Christ. And of course, I love the king and the kingdom of that 12th verse about the root of Jesse. And he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. That is the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you've got the ensign of his gospel and the royal standard of his authority in your life and planted firmly there. And I hope that you love his pavilion, you see his pavilion clearly. And while the tents of all the host of heaven is gathered round, that you're in the secret compartment of his tabernacle, having fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 13 is a wonderful blessing. And I pray that God will fill all of you with all joy and peace in believing that you may all abound in hope. What a glorious verse. Let's get to this 14th verse, and I will pass over some of the nuances of it that would distract and bore many of you, and I'll even say rightly so. Let me just tease you a little bit. There's three alsos in this verse, and if, you, if you've heard me for very long, you know that I worry and care about alsos. I hope I worry and care about every word of God. Because the Bible says we're supposed to live by every word of God. And when you start playing with one word, or you're thinking that one word doesn't matter very much, then what's going to keep you from thinking that about the second word in a verse? And pretty soon we're down the road to heresy. So I do care about every word. But if you want to worry about the three also's along with your pastor, it'll be in the outline. I want to pass over that due to the sake of time. And I'm not going to take very long here. There's three things I want you to know from the 14th verse. Let me read it to you again. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. There's three things we want to pull out of this verse. Goodness, knowledge, and admonishing. And I want you to ask yourself, 
Where do you stand? And how persuaded would Paul be about you? How persuaded would Paul be about you, about your goodness, your knowledge, and your ability and actuality of admonishing? Okay? Three things. Three very simple things. May God forgive me if I have distracted you in times past with too many nuances of the text so that you miss the lesson. That's the lesson. I want you to get three things, and I want you to ask yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ, are you good at all three? Would Paul, would the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord Jesus Christ persuaded that you are good at these three things? Paul is very delicately dealing here with Gentiles in the church at Rome he had never met. Remember that when you read the other epistles of Paul, except for maybe Hebrews, he is writing to churches that he was a principal founder of and had been there in person and they knew him. And so he wrote in one way, but see, he has just been pretty tough on the Romans in Romans chapter 14 without ever having met them. And so there, there's some, there's some uh, embellishment of their abilities here in this 14th verse. And you say, are you serious? Can you prove that? Well, look at the 15th verse. Nevertheless, what does nevertheless mean? Well, in spite of the high language I just used for your abilities, Verse 15, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind. Why did he need to put them in mind of anything since they were filled with all knowledge? I'm gone. Those are the little nuances of verse 14 that some of you may enjoy looking at and thinking about, but I'm passing on. I want to look at three things. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren... The apostle is getting very personal with them and embracing them that he agrees with the testimony that is known worldwide about this church. This church was in the shadow of Nero, the capital of the Roman Empire, the Roman church. Their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. How do we know that? Because of chapter 1 and verse 8 where Paul said that as he introduced himself into this epistle. And here he's closing up the epistle. Chapter 16 is a bunch of salutations and greetings among persons. And he's closing it up and he's referring to that again. It was a great church, a church full of faith. But there's three things he wanted to exhort them to and he wanted to press them to their duties by saying that he knew they were fully capable of doing these things. That God had blessed them with sufficient ability, sufficient knowledge and sufficient goodness that they, like him, could help one another. So let's talk about goodness first that she also are full of goodness. Goodness in its widest sense means moral purity and benevolence. To be good is to be pure. To be good is to be right. To be good is to be virtuous in its broadest sense. In a narrower part of that, it is benevolence. When someone is good, they are kind and they are helpful. So they are, they are pure in helping, and they are right and virtuous in their benevolence toward others. It's a, it's a, it's a shade of the word, and you can see it throughout the Bible, and I'm not going to turn you to many texts, but because of the house of the Lord thy God, I will seek thy good. You know, that is benevolent care for my brethren and my companions' sakes that are there. We know that about the word goodness here, because of its context within the verse. Because that goodness, plus their knowledge, is going to lead to the ability to admonish. 
See, that's more than just moral purity. That is the ability and the desire to help others. Goodness is really the desire to help others. Knowledge is the ability to help others. And then you've got to do some admonishing in order for that desire to help and that ability to help to actually have some fruit. So we're talking about goodness, being filled with all goodness. And I want you to ask yourself right now, would Paul be persuaded of me? Would the Lord Jesus Christ be persuaded of me that I'm full of all goodness? That's what we must ask ourselves as we look at the text. So what I mean by goodness here, and what I understand the Holy Spirit to mean by goodness here, is benevolent and loving kindness to care for the growth and the profit of others in the church. Benevolent, loving kindness for the spiritual growth and profit in purity of the church. For the church to be better in the sight of Christ. Brethren, I'm persuaded of you in Rome that you are full of goodness. I heard about much goodness from this church in my absence, for which I'm very thankful. But I want each of us to ask, am I showing as much good? Do I have as much good, as many good concerns and desires for the church as I should have? Let me help you with that. Do not be distracted by the good thing that goodness is in general. But that, that means the distinction that I'm making in the meaning. Don't be distracted by good, usually meaning morally pure or virtuous or right. Think about it being good and wanting to do good toward others in the church. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. My brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, do not be content, do not be content with good that you can do toward the Lord by yourself alone. Don't let your holiness your reading, your meditating upon God's Word, your praying, your fasting, your giving, your memorizing, your doing of church chores, cause you to be content while you avoid others. Because the real goodness here is going to lead us to a one another duty. The most important words maybe in the verse are the last two, one another. This is something that should be done by each church member toward every other church member. One of my favorite studies, and I told my wife this in bed last night, one of my favorite studies I've ever given you and that the Lord's ever shown me clearly is the one another duties of the Bible. When you see that combination pronoun of one another, it is each individual member of a church owes every other individual member of the church that particular thing under consideration. Like when the Bible says love one another. Well, that's a compound pronoun, meaning each one of you should love every other one of you. It's just, it's a neat expression in the Bible. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Oh, the Bible's filled with them. Admonish one another. So that's what we want to be leading to in all of our thoughts. So my point right now is do not be content that you are good because you are showing God good at home. Do you remember a statement made by someone in this pulpit earlier today? That there is a way to worship God in private, and there's a way to worship God corporately, and God has chosen to be worshipped corporately. Right. We worship Him privately. But let us not be content with our discipline at Bible reading, our discipline at praying, our discipline in giving, because those are things done for ourselves to the Lord. We want to remember that this verse is pushing us beyond that, even in its word goodness, toward the care of others. So that it's things that we do that benefit them. 
Do not be deceived by goodness to yourself. You know, we've learned a verse in Proverbs eleven seventeen that says that a merciful man doeth good to his own self. We like that verse. But that verse should be way down the list of priorities in the Word of God because we should want to do good to the house of God first and the people of God. When measuring your goodness, make sure that you measure it by those that don't like you or that you think don't like you. You know, Luke chapter 6 and verse 33 puts it this way, and I'll read it to you, Luke six thirty-three. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, see the use of the word good? And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? Sinners also do even the same. If you show goodness and kindness to others that show goodness and kindness to you, you haven't proved anything, because right. sinners do that. But you know, those that you get along with least in the church, and I wish there wasn't any such thing, and there shouldn't be if we would all do what this verse is teaching us, it's those that you want to show goodness toward and that you want to go after. So when measuring your goodness, make sure that you measure it by those that show you none themselves. When measuring your goodness, make sure that you remember there's two classes of people that we're supposed to show good toward. Everyone, and especially the household of faith. And that's how it puts it in the Bible. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, it words it this way. The Lord knows that we meet a lot of people in our lives, and we have to interact with them. Galatians 6.10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good. See, there it is again, do good, full of goodness. Unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So who should get your greatest amount of attention? Who should get the greatest amount of effort? The household of faith right here. Those of us who are together in one body. I know we've got colleagues out there, we've got neighbors, we've got family that aren't in the household of faith. We want this to be the emphasis because that's where God puts the emphasis. When measuring your goodness, be sure to include those good things you did not do because the Bible says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So, when you're measuring yourself, and I want I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be fully persuaded of all of you. I'm His ambassador today to you. From this verse, there are three things we want to ask. Do I have the good concern for everyone else in the church and for the church as a whole that Psalm 122 described? Am I like David in Psalm 122? Am I like the Romans in Romans 15, 14? Rather than a little goodness, let's be abundant in our goodness. Because it says, ye also are full of goodness. Not just a little bit. I don't think I need to say any more about goodness. Got it? Reading the book and the law of God distinctly and give the sense and cause them to understand the reading. You understand the reading. Now God, by the Holy Spirit, convict every person in this church to care about the goodness of this house like David did in Psalm 122 and like the Romans did in Romans 15, 14. We can go on to the next word. Filled with all knowledge. <laughs> if they were filled with all knowledge, why did Paul even write them? Because Paul is very wise and he is delicately dealing with these Gentiles. They have never met him. He's a Jew. He's a Jew writing Gentiles, telling them to back off on his Jewish brethren. If you understood the Christian liberty of the meats and drinks and so forth of Romans chapter 14. And so he's, he's, uh, he's giving them a little kindness right here 
in praising them that they are capable of taking care of themselves and he didn't mean to sound like an overbearing tyrant and that they were totally incompetent Christians. So he says it like this, and he goes on and reminds them in verse 15, Nevertheless, I did have to put you in mind of some things, and if you're bothered, if you're bothered at this point, then I'm going to invoke this issue. I am the apostle of the Gentiles, right. so back off. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's what he implies by the next five, word, five or ten verses of this chapter. That was a nuance that I went back to. See, I have a temptation because I love the nuances, and I hope that you are thankful for a pastor that likes the nuances, but when he gets in the pulpit, he should forget most of them. You should hear the conversations that take place in the dark, in the bed at 507 Summer Green Way about nuances versus give me the bottom line. I have a wife that is for your good. Because some of you are 10% and some of you are one percenters. You want all the details. But we want these three things. Goodness. Now, what about the knowledge? Filled with all knowledge. God gave His Word and preachers for your knowledge and understanding. Are you filled with all knowledge? Do you know everything that there is to know about Christian liberty? Are you able to remember the rules of Christian liberty so that you don't violate anyone else's conscience? I would say that Christian liberty should be the first subject of knowledge that we even think about in this verse because of its close proximity to what's gone before it in chapter 14 and the first part of this chapter. Filled with all knowledge. Would Paul be fully persuaded about you, each one of you, that you are filled with all knowledge? That you have paid attention? That you have acquired wisdom and understanding from the Bible? Let's not talk about using it. Let's just talking about, let's just talk about having it. Do you have it? In Jeremiah 3.15, this is why God gives pastors. According to Jeremiah 3.15, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. When God gives pastors that are after his heart, they in turn feed a congregation with knowledge and with understanding. Have you benefited from the knowledge and understanding that's been communicated to you? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. It's close by. You can find it, and it's got several verses I would like to read. Ephesians chapter 4. Are you filled with all knowledge? We want to have such a church, and we want to be such individuals, that if the Apostle Paul were writing about us with the spirit of discernment given by the Holy Spirit that knew that church intimately, he would say, I myself also am persuaded of you, that ye are full of all goodness, filled with all knowledge. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended up on high, he gave some apostles. That means some in the church had the gift and office of apostleship and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That's one office, pastor and teacher, because it's applied to the sum of that fourth office. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, and this office called bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a pastor and a teacher. Why did God give those offices? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, so that you can come to perfection. For the work of the ministry, for being a servant, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for building up the church, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. That's the goal. 
till we all come in the unity of the faith, we are all agreed in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. And we can continue to read down there, and it gives my job description. And my job description is to keep you from men that are lying in wait to cunningly deceive you and move you away from the hope of the gospel. But it's to grow in knowledge. Have you benefited? Do you retain what you've been taught? You read last evening from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And I have need of milk instead of strong meat. Are you filled with all knowledge? Knowledge has been communicated. I'm sorry that it wasn't communicated perfectly. But it has been communicated, and it's available for review. We have more tools at our disposal to hear and to review than anyone has ever had before. And it condemns me as much as it condemns you. You know, I don't like to read about some of those old men that didn't have the means that I have and the amount of productivity they had in their lives. I understand. And I'm saying the same thing to you. We should be filled with all knowledge of God's will for our lives. We should be filled with how to deal with matters of Christian liberty in a church like this. How good of a teacher are you? How much teaching do you do? Would Paul be pleased with you? You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, five verses there that I love, that Solomon wrote Proverbs for his son to have the certain words of truth. So the word... The world has an opinion this way and this way. If they get a classroom of 20 people, the teacher says, you know, so-and-so was just executed last night in the state of Texas. Jim Bob, what do you think about that? Sally, what do you think about that? And they go around the room. That isn't teaching. That isn't learning. That is just a bunch of nonsense being shared. We have the certain words of truth. I love Proverbs 22, 17 through 21. We have the certain words of truth, and they were written in Proverbs, pithy little sayings, so that we can get those words fitted in our lips, so that we can speak them to others when they come and ask us, what should I do in this situation? We've got the certain words of truth in our mouth to give them. That's being filled with all knowledge. Lord, help us to that end. If you're a father, you're supposed to be bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition. Oh, that sounds like it fits this verse because it's able to admonish that we're coming upon next. If you're a father, you must, you must take in the Word of God so that you can give admonition to your children. What is admonition? It means to put one in mind of their duties. What duties? What God expects from their life. That's to admonish someone, is to remind them of their duties to please God. If you're a husband... You should be taking in the Word of God so that your wife can ask you and you can give her an answer. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, women are not supposed to ask questions in church and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Well, husbands, that puts a burden upon us to be the main readers of the Word of God in our homes and to take it in so that we can answer our wives. The question is, as we end the words filled with all knowledge, Would Paul be persuaded of you that you are filled with all knowledge or have you been neglectful? Have you been slothful at taking in the Word of God and the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge that is there? Able also to admonish one another. Admonition. 
Now I've just explained it to you and defined it for you. Admonition. When you admonish someone, you remind them of their duties and put them in mind of what they ought to do to please God. When you rebuke someone, you're telling them that is not the way to do it. When you warn someone, you're telling them, if you keep that up, this is what's going to happen. But to admonish someone is to put them in mind of their duties. And this church should be a church full of admonition. Someone walks in with a sad face. It takes you two sentences to figure out they're just in a bad mood. Brother, you ought to be happy. The Lord gave His life for us. We have a church that holds the truth. That's admonition. See, I didn't know it was that easy. I thought I'd have to make an appointment and sit down with them and tear them up a little bit with the Word of God. Oh, I hope we don't even have to do that in here. We just need to look around and, you know, if someone misses a couple weeks and you find out that they were just at home because they had a runny nose and there's things called antihistamines on the shelf, then you walk up to them and say, Brother, we ought to be in the house of the Lord every time that we can be. We're showing mercy. But that's an admonition. That's reminding them of the importance of being here and assembling together. I missed you. Brother, I missed you. I hope that you'll be here every time that you can be, and I hope that I'll be here every time that I can. That's admonishing a brother. Now that is gentle, and that is loving, and if we all did that to each other, we'd all be better Christians. Able also to admonish one another. You know, a pastor, especially an apostle at a distance. Paul never been to Rome. I worry about this congregation every day of my life. And I live right in the middle of you. And I see you every few days. I can't even imagine Paul's life. Do you know what it says about him? When it lists his resume and all the terrible things he went through, the last one is, and the care of all the churches. I can't even... Oh, do you know how long it would take him to communicate? I can send that a little update to all of you. And click, and it's all in your inboxes. Paul, you know, six weeks later, the letter finally arrives to them. Four weeks after that, he gets a response back, or he doesn't get a response at all wondering what's going on. And so Paul loved the fact that when his people that he taught would admonish one another in his absence. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Now the question we got to ask about this word admonition, are you able to admonish one another? Do you want to admonish one another? Do you properly admonish one another? That is what will make our church great in the sight of the Lord. I want this To be the greatest church on earth for the glory of God, not for any praise to us, but all for Him. He gave His all for us, we'll give our all for Him. In Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conversation, that's your manner of life, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Let your living be something that adorns the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did did I go slow enough for you to appreciate those words of what Paul wanted for that church? It's what I want for this church. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants for this church. And he is the great shepherd and bishop of this church. I'm just a little tiny under-shepherd. This is a beautiful verse that your lifestyle would adorn the gospel, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, without my help, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is a glorious text. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he goes forth and he says that he'll rejoice in the day of Christ down there in verse 16 for their obedience. So, a pastor, when he's not with his people, is scared, worried, nervous about what's going to be going on. And so he exhorts them to help one another, to hold fast with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we have Romans 15, 14, and I hope that your Bible is back open to 15, 14, because we're at the third of the three things we want to ask ourselves about. Would the Apostle Paul be persuaded of you that you are able to admonish one another? To admonish is just to put somebody in mind of their duties. Can you do that? Will you do that? You need first to be competent in knowledge. That was filled with all knowledge. To be able to admonish someone, you got to know what God's will is. You can't just say, well, I don't think you should be doing that. Hey, that sounds like Christian liberty you're throwing at me if you, if you say, I don't think you should be doing that. We don't want those words around here. I don't think you should be doing that. You want to start hearing all the things I don't think you should be doing? And I don't want to hear all the things that you want to say to me I don't think you should be doing. We don't care about those kind of things. What we care about is what does God want from all of us? And the only way that we can help people is to be competent in knowledge by having knowledge of the Bible. And so we need to read it. We need to hear it. We need to review it. We need to take it in. We need to embrace it. We need to fit it in our lips. So when we're asked a question or we see something, we're able to give the certain words of truth, not the words of opinion. Able also to admonish when there's the first thing you need is to be competent in knowledge. And that's in this verse. Filled with all knowledge. The second thing you need is to be affectionate, considerate, looking for opportunities to help someone. And that's in the first word in this verse. Goodness. Why do we get together? Hebrews chapter 3 says, Let us exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have to consider each other and look out for each other, lest we see any of us sliding away from obedience to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through... I do not like appealing to verses when most of you do not know by the reference what it is what it is saying there. Forgive me for all of that in the past. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let us, plural, my brethren and my companions in the house of God, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, what you professed when you were baptized, what we have come to believe from the Word of God. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Let's be as faithful to Him as He is to us. And let us consider one another. Oh, that's what I wanted out of that verse. Let us consider one another. When we come to church, we are not like Catholics. When Catholics go to church, they go for this little, this little play that's being acted out up front. They just sit there. They walk forward, stick out their tongue. If the, the sun wafer is put on their tongue, the priest says, the Lamb of God. They turn and they go back to their seat. 
The mass is over. They go back out, jump in their car, go home, play football, go golfing, whatever. There's no interchange. There's no considering of one another. There's no exhorting one another in the faith. There's no holding fast. They've just watched this little charade on a stage. We are not like that. We come into church to consider one another. We look around. We talk with one another. That's why you hear me get irritated with some of you that limit yourself mostly to your family. We don't want to do that on Sunday. We don't want to talk to our family on Sunday. We want to talk to each other and to consider one another that we don't get to talk to as much during the week. But he, this, is the, this is the passage in the Bible that talks about why we go to church and we don't forsake assembling. This is the passage. So that we are there to consider one another and to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is why there's a church. The church is not for the pastor. The church is for all of us to come together where we can consider one another and provoke one another. Oh, there's those one another duties. One another. Every one of us should get familiar with every other one of you and consider you and provoke you to love and to good works. That word provoke there could, could mean everything by an example of love and good works, exhortation to love and good works, admonition to love and good works, warning, rebuke, correction, instruction, all of that. Are we here today to help each other in love and good works be the best Christians we have ever been so that the year 2014 is a watershed year in our relationship with Jesus Christ? That is why we have a church. It is not an audience for a preacher. It's for us to band together and help each other hold fast with one spirit, one mind, striving together, together for the one hope of the gospel. Amen. Back to Romans fifteen fourteen. The first thing you need is to be competent in knowledge or you can't do it. Then you need desire, the goodness. You've got you to have the compassion, the care to consider one another or you won't do it. Then you actually have to do it. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. I'm about done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. Read in the book and the law of God distinctly. Give the sense and cause them to understand the reading. And God the Holy Spirit convict every one of you to put it into practice. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. This is not a pastoral epistle. This is not First or Second Timothy or Titus. This is to you. This is not one of the books I read this past two weeks. This is for you. Now we exhort you, brethren. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is a job description for everyone in a church. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. When someone is doing something wrong, and it's visible, you should warn them that what they're doing is wrong. Comfort the feeble-minded. There will be those that are weak, that do not understand as much, Tell them God loves them and Christ died for them as much as the smartest person in the congregation. Right. Help them through difficulties that they might be having in their life where their faith is not as strong as it should be. Which moves on into the next one, support the weak. You know, there's weak brothers in Christian liberty. There's weak brothers in, in knowledge. And you should support them. This truly applies to Christian liberty as well. Support the weak. We would never do anything in front of a weak person that might cause them to be weak or to be a stumbling block to them or to hurt their conscience. We support the weak. We want to be there for them. We want to help bear their burdens. If they've got something, a big burden in their life that we don't have a big burden in our life, then we get over there and we get our shoulder under part of that by giving them encouraging words of comfort and bearing up with them and praying for them in that burden. Be patient toward all men. Oh, that's very important. 
that we are long-suffering and kind toward each other because we are going to offend each other on a regular basis unless we are patient toward all men. That patience is cheerfully enduring them hurting our feelings. All in one verse, that's your job description as church members, and I draw from it to fill out the sense of able also to admonish one another. Then you've got to do it. You know, oh, Lord, thank you. The word admonish means to put a person in mind of his duties, to counsel them against wrong practices, to give authoritative or warning advice, to exhort, and so forth. This is a one another duty. Is Paul persuaded of you? Is the Lord Jesus Christ persuaded of you? Are you a soul winner? He that winneth souls is wise. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. We, we do not understand that verse like so many others understand it. We understand it in the sense of James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, that's someone in this church. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, one him, that's a one another duty, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's the soul winning of Proverbs 11.30. And that's the soul winning that we ought to do. Oh, brethren, and there's, you know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs over and over, it says that if you rebuke or exhort a, a wise man, he will be yet wiser. It tells us to avoid scorners, and we shouldn't have any scorners in here, because we should all be like David said. This is the attitude we ought to have when someone comes to us and says, Brother, I'd like to exhort you and remind you that you ought to be doing such and such. You know what happens when that, when that occurs? What happens to the hairs in the back of your neck? What happens to your insides? What happens to your, <laughs> your hands? You know, we get angry. We get defensive. And that is so wrong. Do you know what David said? This is David. He was king. Do you know what he said? If the righteous smite me, I will count it a kindness. And I will pray for God's blessing in their life. That is the attitude we ought to have. That is a godly attitude. Romans 15, 14. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are also full of goodness, benevolent, kind care for the profit and welfare of others, filled with all knowledge, having accumulated the certain words of truth and God's will for our lives, able also to admonish one another. I have written you this epistle because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to explain. But you have enough knowledge and you have enough goodness that you are able to take care of these matters among yourselves. I'm not trying to be an overbearing tyrant from a distance. Go ahead and do those things yourself. And the God of peace and so forth be with you as he's going to close out this epistle. You understand? There's three things you want to ask yourself. Do I have the goodness of nature of Psalm 122 that David had that I care about the house of God and the people here? Do I have the goodness that Paul describes here in Romans 15, 14? That's the first. Second, have I acquired a base of knowledge that I know what is right and what the Bible teaches so that I'm able to admonish one another so that we can have a perfect church in the sight of God? Perfect, perfect, never. Absolutely perfect, never. Perfect in the sight of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Quite easily. Amen. All we've got to do is Romans 15, 14. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. 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 Amen.